Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey everybody, it's Tina from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, I talked to Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott. Kevin's just written a book called Reprogramming the American Dream. It just came out this week. It's all about AI, how it's inevitable, and how it's going to remake the American economy, particularly in rural America, which is where Kevin's from. He's had a really interesting path. He was at Google for a while. He left. He joined AdMob. He came back to Google. He left, joined LinkedIn. LinkedIn got acquired by Microsoft, and he's ended up as Microsoft CTO, where he thinks on a longer timescale than Microsoft's other business units, which have to ship products and make money. Kevin's job is to think big, to think about where the company's investments should be. We had a really great conversation about AI, where it's headed, the bets he's made, the wrong way to think about training our models, the right way to think about those models, and really how it's going to remake economy. This was a really interesting conversation, especially in the context of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Both of us are obviously talking to each other from home. There's a moment, I think, where we're going to reset a lot of our assumptions about how society might work after this. It's a good opportunity to rethink some those core assumptions and AI is going to be right at the center of it. So uh, really interesting conversation. Hope you like it. Check it out. It's Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott. Kevin Scott, you're the CTO of Microsoft. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So I just want to start with some background. You're, you're fairly new to Microsoft and you've had kind of this winding road. You've just written a book about the future of AI in America. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, but give people a sense of your your background and how, how you've arrived at this position at Microsoft. Yeah, it's sort of a a meandering path, really, and I, I write a write about a lot of it in the in the book. So I, I grew up in rural Central Virginia uh, in the seventies and eighties. Like I had the good fortune to get interested in personal computers at exactly the moment where personal computers were becoming a thing, and I, for the first half of my adult life, like I thought I was going to be an academic. So I went to went to study computer science at uh, at university and went to graduate school and thought I was going to be a, a professor. And I met my wife, who is a historian. She also thought she was going to be a professor. And we moved to Germany together, and you know, had this epiphany that that really wasn't what we wanted to 
do. And we moved from Germany to the United States. And then I joined Google in 2003 uh, before the IPO and have had this really uh, wild and interesting ride uh, since then. So one of the, you were at Google and then you left to go to AdMob. Yes. And then you were like reacquired by Google. Yes. And then you went to LinkedIn and then you were acquired by Microsoft. Is that about right? That is about right. Very good. <laughs> I read. See, I read the book. You did. I paid attention. Uh, I'm so happy. (laughs) uh, The book, by the way, is called "Reprogramming the American Dream." It's about how AI might change society, particularly rural society, which I think is worth talking about. But I want to talk about uh, Microsoft for one more second. What does the CTO of Microsoft do? This is like a new role um, for the company in the way that I think your conception of it is being sort of managed, right? Yeah. Microsoft had a had a CTO a long time ago, a guy named Nathan Mirvold, who like I, I really admire a whole bunch of things that Nathan does. Like he's uh, he's a polymath and renaissance uh, renaissance man. But he, he left Microsoft a long while ago. And like there have been people who played a CTO ish uh, role there. So Bill did for a while and Ray Ozzy and Chi Lu, who was running a running a big part of the Microsoft engineering team, played that role for Satya for a while. And the way that I came into the role was Microsoft had just acquired LinkedIn and she had almost exactly the same time decided to retire. And Microsoft, like Satya in particular, was looking for someone to help him do some of this uh, work in technology that cuts all the way across all of the engineering groups because it it was falling disproportionately on him to sort of spot repetition of work or holes in strategy or and like you know we had a bunch of things like ai uh in particular like i've spent probably 75 80 percent of my time over the past three years that i've been in this role helping to make sure that the company's ai strategy makes sense uh, that we're building the right infrastructure, that like we are hiring the right people, that we are making the appropriate investments given where the field is going. And so I do a whole bunch of things like that. So I run our AI supercomputing efforts that uh, like span the entire company. So all the engineering groups use the outputs of uh, this stuff. I'm helping us to make sure that we have the right strategy on edge computing and silicon and uh, like a whole bunch of fun stuff. And uh, I also uh, now run Microsoft Research and a bunch of our uh, technology incubation uh, teams, which is a ton of fun and, and ironic in a way, because I when I was a Ph.D. student, I was an intern at Microsoft Research and I could not have imagined in a million years back then that I would one day be responsible for uh, for this unbelievably awesome research organization. Yeah. So your focus here in the book is AI, but obviously your job at Microsoft spans a lot of other things. What does that balance look like for you? I mean, I think of Microsoft research uh, to this day, and this has uh, not a lot of relevance anymore, but to this day, I think of like the courier video, which like posited this dream of a folding tablet that would just like go around with you. I think of the of the very first Surface Table video. Yep. Right. Like the, the idea was we're gonna we're gonna push the concepts of what we can do in the future. Is that a big part of your role? Yeah, it is. Um, the way that I look at my 
job is I sort of do a similar set of things to my engineering colleagues. So Rajesh Jha, who runs the experiences and devices uh, group, and Scott Guthrie, who runs uh, the cloud and AI group, and Phil Spencer, who runs gaming. So like they're all running these big engineering teams and like they have to think about their technology strategy and, you know, like how they're delivering all of this stuff. But we sort of spend uh, our time just sort of in a different mix of the time horizons that we're paying attention to. So like they they really have a lot of stuff that they have to deliver in a quarter and in a year. And they, they spend a huge amount of their time and energy sort of focused on what their groups need to do to make sure that like all of this really complicated stuff gets done in that time horizon. And then they also are thinking about the future. I spend more of my time thinking about what it is that we need to be doing two to five years from now that we will very much regret if we're not investing uh, in the moment. Uh, Like what are the technology trends? What's the competitive landscape look like? Where do we want to be pushing where like we believe that we've got a point of view about what the future ought to look like and like where are the sort of inexorable trends and technology going that uh, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to react to. And I do spend some time thinking about, you know, like what we need to deliver this year, like the the AI supercomputing stuff is a good example. Like we we have a very rapidly growing uh, investment that we're making in the infrastructure required to train these very, very big AI models that the world is building right now. And there's just a bunch of blocking and tackling that has to happen to go make sure that infrastructure gets built in the right way and, and delivered on time. But to, to your point about Microsoft Research, like a the, the whole purpose of having a research organization like that is that you can take risks uh, and make these es- explorations uh, into what the future might look like or could look like that are very hard to make when like your accountabilities are all about you know the next twelve months. Yeah. So let's let's talk about AI. You just said uh, you got to train the models the right way. Hey, my question is, what's the wrong way? Well, the the field is changing fairly dramatically, and there's a bunch of ways to answer that question. There's uh, there's certainly all of the you know, sort of fairness and bias and ethical use uh, questions. And there's a bunch of wrong way uh, for, for building things on that dimension. There is, and, and this is part of the reason that I wrote the book, there is, once you have the technology and it is fair and unbiased and being used ethically, there's still the questions around uh, who has access to the technology and uh, what is it getting used to do for the good of the whole public. And then there are just a bunch of technical things that are changing very, very quickly in in the field that make it very difficult to make, you know, high conviction prognostications about what's going to happen. So like we've had this really startling shift from supervised machine learning to unsupervised learning in the past two years, where, you know, two years ago, people would have like laid down good money that supervised machine learning may be the one and only way to go build things because we'd had so much success with it. Like all of the speech recognition and computer vision things that are happening are, were all built on supervised uh, deep learning. Yeah. Kai-Fu Lee wrote this uh, like really good book where like he, you know, just drove a stake in the ground and said, uh, you know, like 
we, we are in the era of uh, supervised deep learning and, you know, and like that's, I mean, he didn't say that's all that there's ever going to be, but like he was making a very big argument about like how that was the most important thing in the world. And then almost immediately after that happened, like the, this, these just remarkable things started happening with uh, reinforcement learning and unsupervised uh, deep learning for natural language processing that have really revolutionized the entire field. And so it's like all three of those things. It's like the the fairness bias ethics. There's the, you know, like, are you building this set of technologies as a platform that's accessible to everyone and that can be used uh, by anyone who needs to create technology? And then there's the, like, are you really paying attention to what's happening with the fundamental trends with the technology so that you can make sure that your investments are aligned with where the science is going. So when you think about where the science is going in the book, there there's this concept uh, that you write about, which is there are these periods of frenetic activity in AI. And then there are sort of AI winters where things slow down, where obviously it feels like a period of frenetic activity, but is something like supervised learning, does that just hit a maximum of what it can do? And you got to move on to the next model. Are they happening in parallel? How do you evaluate those kinds of choices. Yeah, I think there, there's a whole bunch of things happening in parallel. It's not like supervised uh, learning is over with. And like one of the things that we're even seeing with these big unsupervised models that we're building now is one of the really attractive things about them is that uh, transfer learning is finally working. So you can train a model that's very general and then either with no uh, fine tuning at all or with some some fine tuning to a particular task uh, and the fine tuning is usually supervised, um, you can get them to do like an incredible breadth of things that weren't possible before. Um, so yeah, I do think that there's more of a mixture of things being explored right now than there were before. And like, there are a whole bunch of people who, you know, if you, if you look at what's happening with the unsupervised learning, the compute demand is going up by almost an order of magnitude a year. It's something like eight X every, you know, 12 months. And it doesn't take too many years on that curve before, you are using every iota of available compute on the planet Earth to train models. And so, like, obviously, that won't be sustainable for long. And, like, you'll reach some point of, you know, diminishing marginal returns either on the amount of money that you're using to pay the models or the models' performance uh, themselves will start to flatten out. And so there are a bunch of people doing, like, really interesting fundamental work on what are the alternatives to these approaches? Um, you know, is backpropagation for, you know, in these deep neural networks, is like that the only way to do machine learning? You know, there's a you know, computer scientist and entrepreneur, Gary Marcus, who is a vocal critic of the current path that a large number of people are on for deep learning. And like, you know, his assertions are, yeah, and so his observations are actually correct uh, that, yeah, we're building these incredibly sophisticated systems and they are brittle in ways that no human being's intelligence actually is. And in some cases, they're problems that, you know, your two-year-old can solve. Uh, even even if, you know, like a, a, a toddler who is uh, pre-linguistic, like they can't speak yet, can solve problems that the most sophisticated AI cannot. And so like that's, uh, I don't know, like it just, 
I think there's so many exciting opportunities here. Like we are far, far, far away from having all of the problems solved. Yeah. And I think that brings me to kind of where your book is really focused, which is this is happening. It will change our relationship to computers in a very serious way. And it will change our relationship to work in a serious way. And that will have some, some impact, particularly on rural America that we have to, we have to actually think about now. There's a relationship there that I just want to pull apart, which is we don't know how it's going to work, right? I mean, that's the conversation we've been having. It's a lot of very smart people are working on the mechanics of AI right now and having conversations about where the current approach might be failing or succeeding or inventing new approaches. But if you abstract that out, everyone is pretty convinced it's going to work. And now you're talking about what are the consequences of it? Yeah. Well, I think everyone is convinced that AI is going to be able to accomplish increasingly useful things over time. Uh, Like there's more of a question around whether or not you ever get to artificial general intelligence. Uh, So like that is uh, that's AI that is in, in the full general sense, the equivalent of a human being cognitively. So some people, you know, think that we're, you know, pretty close to that. And some people think that we're, you know, decades away from that. And some people think that it's never going to happen. What do you think? Uh, so what what I think is this is this is I hate to say it this way because I sort of sound like a politician. But like uh, the, the thing that I really do believe is when you believe or if you believe that AGI is going to happen, I believe that pursuing it is extremely worthy. Like it, it, it is driving a bunch of advancement in technology that is going to be useful that is useful even if you never get to full AGI and like even the study of AGI itself shines a light on the nature of human intelligence which I think is very well understood like this is sort of one of the complicated problems about having a discussion about artificial intelligence because you know we make all of these false equivalences between human and artificial intelligence and like the the fact of the matter is like human intelligence itself is extremely poorly understood we we understand an increasing amount about the biology of the human brain but like human cognition is like a really you know sort of fuzzy thing like one of the things for instance that's happened over and over again through the history of ai is that we set challenges for AI that we think are like high watermarks of human cognition, then we go solve those problems like beating grandmasters at chess or Go or, you know, multiplayer online games or speech recognition or, you know, labeling, uh, labeling the objects and still or moving images. Like these are all things that computers can do just as well or better in some cases than human beings can. And as soon as we you know, like we, we, we have this repeated pattern of as soon as we solve one of those problems, we're like, OK, well, maybe that isn't actually the thing that, uh, you know, makes makes a human being smart. So, yeah, I look, I, I think, my, you know, my opinion is that we, we have lots of very interesting things coming out of the pursuit of AGI right now uh, that are uh, going to be very, very good tools for folks to go use to build things that matter. Do you think it's going to happen? I ask every self-driving car person if when they think self-driving cars will happen. I feel like my next move is to ask every AI person when AGI is going to happen. Well, I, I, I really don't know when. I, like, I am one of the people who think that we'll, uh, we will get there. 
at some point. I, I don't think it's five years away, though. Fair. So that brings us back to sort of the, the first part of this conversation, which was we think these things are going to happen and they will have some impact on how we live and work. And that, again, is is more what your book is about than the mechanics of how it might happen. Yes. So as you were thinking about writing a book like this, what were the things that you really focused on in terms of, A, convincing people this is happening, it's going to happen, you have to take it seriously, and B, here are the impacts and choices we, we're going to have to make? One of the big aha moments that I had early in the process of writing the book is I went home to central Virginia and I had this set of preconceived notions about what I was going to see when I chatted with people there who were running their businesses and, you know, like how they were thinking about technology, like how or if they were thinking about AI and the impacts it might have. And I was just really blown away uh, and sort of reminded of something that I knew from my childhood, which is in all of these communities, there are ingenious, industrious people who are doing very clever things already with technology. And that some of the most successful businesses that you can find uh, in rural and middle America are making use of the best possible tools that they can they can find, um, you know, so a good example of this is, uh, you know, like one of my childhood friends is a manager at this company that does precision plastics machining. Um, so they make these very intricate uh, parts out of plastic for customers all over the United States. Uh, they literally set this business up in a building that used to be a textile mill, which is one of the three industries that got, uh, you know, sort of hollowed out by uh, globalization in the 80s and 90s in, in the part of rural central Virginia where I grew up. And that entire business only exists because of technology and the humans who are able to harness it to do these interesting things. So they use the internet to market their services uh, and to communicate with their customers. And then they're using these very high performance CNC machines to actually make the parts. And they have these high skill workers there who are programming the machines uh, to build the things that their customers uh, want and need. And, you know, I, I, it was just a reminder to me that, you know, this thing that my, my grandfather taught me when I was super young, that people can accomplish incredible things when they have the tools to accomplish them. Yeah. Cause I have an enormous amount of faith in human ingenuity and and as I look at, at these businesses in my, my my hometown, it's not like they're using huge amounts of AI right now, but it's very easy to see how everything that they're doing is going to benefit from AI, where they're going to get more competitive, they're going to create more of these high-skill jobs that are going to have this positive impact on the economies of, of these these communities that are spread out across the country that, that in a certain way, like for manufacturing, for instance, there's almost like a Moore's law effect going into these machines. So the amount of capital used to acquire a machine uh, that has capabilities to produce something valuable is going up. So like, you know, for a small business loan, you can go, you know, get yourself a manufacturing capability, whether it's these CNC machines or 3D printing or, you know, like these increasingly agile manufacturing technologies where you can start a really competitive business, uh, you know, do doing 
very interesting things serving markets that exist, like where you don't have to, you're not having to invent things out of whole cloth. And all of that benefits from uh, from things like AI. Like AI makes the machines more capable, which means that they can be used by businesses to make themselves more competitive and to like do more interesting things. So, so that was like this this big aha moment that I had. And as soon as I saw a handful of these in my community, then I started looking around and like you can sort of spot these companies everywhere. And and I, I will say like the other revelation too, and like something that I just sort of knew, but like wasn't really uh, as focused on it as I should have been is the, the very first machine learning project that I did in 2004 I was coming into the field new, like I had computer science degrees at that point and had been you know, programming since I was 12 years old. I was 30 something at the time. So I, like I'd been doing this stuff for a while, but it still took me you know, weeks and weeks of staring at graduate level textbooks uh, and research papers to get the knowledge into my head that I needed to go do this project. And then I spent six months writing a bunch of complicated code to like do this particular thing. And, you know, when I think about what it would take now because of open source software and cloud platforms and all of the educational materials that are available online, a high school kid in a weekend could do the same thing that I did uh, 16 years ago in, in six months with like this high barrier to entry. And, and the, the barriers to entry to using the tools of AI are going down very fast, which means that like there are going to be more and more opportunities for these businesses, the same way that they're employing this very advanced manufacturing technology to you know, create opportunity for themselves and their employees and their communities, like you're going to be able to use these same tools. And and like the, the thing that's standing in their way is like prosaic stuff, like educating kids in, in high school. And again, like it's not hard stuff to learn anymore. And it's, you know, just super prosaic stuff like broadband access. Like you cannot expect to connect yourself to a digital future where opportunities are going to exist in the form of technology platforms if you can't even connect to the internet it's just insane uh that like we we're having this conversation right now in in 2020 i mean i want to talk about nothing but rural broadband policy and broadband access but i want to stay on and we're going to because you run White spaces at Microsoft too, right? Isn't that my my colleague uh, uh, Brad Smith runs uh, White Spaces, but my teams are heavily involved. Like uh, it's a bunch of technology that came out of Microsoft Research. I definitely want to talk about White Space Internet, but not right this second. I want to come back to a scene from your book where you're talking about high school kids. There's a big data center in Virginia. There's a scene in your book where you're gazing at the you know the enormous data center you have there, and then you go to a job fair. And no one is signing up to work at the data center because they don't know what it is. That seems like the just the most unexpected result, right? Microsoft came to town. They built a huge building. They've got the sign up at the job center that says, come work at the huge fancy building. And no one shows up. How is that happening? How do you get over that hump where it seems like the everyone knows that tech is the future, but the actual stand in this line to get the job application part of it doesn't seem to be that loop doesn't seem to be closed. Yeah, you know, in a sense, that is the biggest reason why I wrote the book, because I think the thing that you need in these moments are 
stories and role models that appeal to people who are trying to imagine their own future. Like I, I know when I was growing up, my dad, my granddad and my great grandfather were all carpenters. They, you know, they made their living in the construction industry. And even though I knew pretty early on that I really love programming and I love technology and like I wanted to try to figure out a career doing that. I didn't have many role models. Like there, there wasn't anyone in my family who was an engineer or who had had a degree in, in science or technology or had a career in science and technology. And, you know, I, I had these moments uh, in, in high school when I was thinking about my life and how I was going to earn a living and, you know, how I was going to have a family and where I was going to live, where it didn't seem like a crazy possibility to me that I was going to go into the family business. And my, my dad was like stridently against it. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't want to leave anyone with the wrong impression. I think there's an enormous amount of dignity and like just critical needs across the board for, you know, for folks to have careers like the one that my dad had, he, for his own reasons, was determined that I wasn't going to do it. But it, it, it had appeal. And like, I, I just, I really do appreciate the quandary that these, these kids are in. Like when you, you know, when everybody in your community is doing a particular set of things and like, those are the paths that you can see to like a future life for yourself asking someone to imagine doing something that seems super abstract, like even if you've got the promise of, you know, some better economic outcomes, uh, like I think that's hard. And so like we have to do a better job of of showing kids like what these paths could look like and why they're interesting and like why, you know, it's not just about the money, I don't think. You can't tell them it's like, oh, you know, you're, you're going to be able to earn more money having a career in tech than following the path of your farmer parents or your, you know, your oil industry parents or, you know, your parents who are, you know, uh, mechanics or like whatever it is that their path was. Uh, you have to show them why it's going to be fun and interesting and compelling and the work you're doing is going to matter to other human beings. Uh, it just can't be this abstract thing, I don't think. Support of The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So we're obviously talking, it's, we're in the middle of the pandemic, we're both sitting at home, millions of people are unemployed in this country right now. The common narrative around AI is it's going to take even more jobs away. And uh, your argument in the book is like, that is absolutely not true, we'll actually create jobs. How do you make, I mean, that seems like a hopeful argument to make in, in this moment, but it also seems like the right time to make that argument. How, how would you frame that conversation? Yeah, I think it's complicated. I mean, the reason that I wrote a book rather than try to have this argument in, uh, you know, on social media is that I do think it's uh, it's like very, very complicated and there's a lot of nuance there. And, and it's just dangerous to, you know, sort of reduce things down to, you know, one point of view or the other. But like I, I do, I very powerfully believe that uh, AI is going to result in not just more, uh, you know, sort of public good and societal benefit than perhaps any other tool that human beings have ever invented. I also think that it will create a huge number of new jobs. If it doesn't, it will be the only technology uh, that we've ever invented that hasn't uh, had <laughs> that, that property, which would make it very strange. Um, and so, you know, I think it creates a job jobs in a whole bunch of a uh, bunch of ways. So one is, um, you know, when I, when I, again, wrote my first machine learning program and uh, or like did my first real machine learning project in 2004, there was no such thing as a data scientist. Uh, and like now it's one of the fastest growing, uh, hottest jobs uh, in the world. And so there, there are already all of these jobs that are being uh, being created by AI, like their whole companies uh, that do nothing other than uh, prepare data and uh, like help with the training of AI models. Uh, like there's a bunch of stuff at a variety of different skill levels that people are doing now and earning a living from that uh, those jobs wouldn't exist if it weren't for AI. Give, give me an example. Well, so there's uh, um, there's this company called Scale AI that's uh, here in Silicon Valley that is doing a bunch of work to help train uh, supervised models for things like the autonomous uh, driving companies. And so like they've got a very interesting business that only exists because you've got a bunch of people who are working on uh, supervised models for a bunch of different applications. And like one of the hard things about doing supervised machine learning is like you have to have people who are teaching the models how to do what you need them to do. You know, and like the teaching right now is, relatively primitive it's it's mostly labeling and you know sort of data uh data cleaning but in the future like we are going to have uh much more sophisticated ways of machine teaching and like this is one of the hopeful things uh, you know i think about ai in general is you know programming programming's barrier to entry is higher than machine learning i would argue uh in the sense that to become a programmer you actually have to understand a fair amount about 
the sort of complexity and idiosyncrasies of uh, computers, digital computers, and they're non-intuitive in a whole bunch of uh, bunch of ways. And so, like, you have to learn all of this complexity, and then you have to learn how to translate human understandings of problems into terms that the computer can uh, can solve them. And like, it requires like a whole bunch of practice and education and 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 whatnot. One of the promises of machine learning is you sort of transfer uh, or you transform this problem of harnessing the power of the machine from a programming uh, challenge to a teaching challenge. And we all know how to teach. Like your your two-year-old can probably teach another two-year-old how to do something. Like it's a just an innate part of uh, you know how human beings work. Like we are all learners and we're all teachers. And so the prospect of having a set of tools where you can get a computer to do work for you by teaching it how to do something, super exciting. And like not only will that create jobs, it will make it possible to incorporate AI and machine learning into businesses in a bunch of ways that we're not imagining. You know, so the real, you know, potential benefits of AI, like I think are sort of twofold. So there's one that it lets you solve a bunch of problems that are difficult or impossible to solve otherwise. And like we can talk about that in a few minutes, just in terms of like some of the uh, like biosciences things that are happening at the intersection of AI, like that are addressing the the pandemic that we're in right now. But the other thing that like place where AI, I think creates real opportunity is where we use it as a tool to sort of uplift human beings. Like imagine if you could make a list of the 10 most repetitive, annoying, mind numbing things that you do every day. And like you had a piece of software that could go capably solve those problems for you. Uh, you know, just like you would with word processors or spreadsheets or whatnot, you would welcome the existence of that software because like, if you're anything like me, I, I know that uh, you, you believe that you could get so much more done in a day uh, if you could have just a little bit of help. Um, and like, that's the idea with AI. It's not that like, oh, we're going to build, you know, commander data and like, he's going to come <laughs> in and do your, do your job for you, you know, at half the price and like never call out sick. Like, that's not the, that's not the thing I think people need to be worried about. I feel like you just really threw some shade at data right there. No, data's awesome. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't know whether you have watched, uh, Picard. Uh, I have not yet. Yeah, so I won't spoil it for you, but uh, let me tell you, there will be tears uh, for you uh, in the the finale, and they are related to Data, who I, I think is actually one of my favorite characters in, in modern fiction. Interesting. I, yeah, I mean, like, look, Data in Star Trek as a narrative device is more about humanity than about uh, AI, so, like, that character, like, let them write all of these stories that sort of shines a light on what it what it is to be a human being uh, than you would otherwise be able to do. And, like, I think that is a very interesting thing about AI right now is it, like, is shining a light on what it is to be human. And a lot of the, the people who are suffering right now, the, the joblessness being created by the pandemic the jobs that are being lost, I don't think are easy to replace with AI. Like they're, they are like in almost to a job, like they are the hardest possible things to imagine AI being able to do because they are direct, you know, human to human contact jobs. And I don't think we want them to go away. 
No, I, I, I don't either. I think that the way I have sort of broadly been thinking about it is this is a well, I've never lived through anything like this. Most people haven't. It is there's an opportunity to reset a bunch of assumptions about how the society works coming out of this. Yep. And what makes this a unique and interesting time to talk about AI for me is, well, you could just bake AI into those assumptions about how you're going to reset society. You're going to yes. say there's a bunch of dangerous jobs that actually we don't think people should go back to. We think there should be uh, robots or there's a bunch of extremely menial, repetitive tasks that we don't think people should do anymore. That should be an AI task. Uh, there's a bunch of dangerous healthcare tasks. You just brought up healthcare. There's a bunch of very dangerous healthcare tasks or tasks. Um, I think in the book you bring up cardiology, right? I think you're an investor yep. in a cardiology startup. There's a bunch of, hey, actually, we need to listen to people's lungs like a lot now. And we need that to be more perfect than ever to say, OK, this is a candidate for testing. AI can help there. I, I, that stuff to me seems additive. But I think the conversation about AI, if there are lots of other people who are, who are making this claim, is it's going to take away a bunch of jobs that were there before. And maybe those workers aren't going to have the skills to go the next level up into the jobs that you're talking about. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, the two things that I will say directly about that is I think it is harder than people imagine to take any AI system that we have right now and to make it a full and complete and equivalent substitute for the human beings doing, uh, doing a job. Like, it's easy to imagine how a piece of AI automates a task. It's very difficult, uh, like, even in the narrowest of things, you know, like customer support, for instance, to imagine, like, how uh, how an AI agent can uh, be a full substitute for humans. And, and you know, the, the people who understand this, businesses who understand this, can get better outcomes. So, you know, like, if you are, you know, a, you know, sort of an, evil oligopolist, uh, you know, and, and you've got, you know, I'm not suggesting that these people actually exist, but it's <laughs> sort of the, it's sort of the caricature that a lot of people paint. Like if you, if you think that your job is to wring every bit of cost out of a system that you're running as humanly possible. And like, you're thinking of AI, you know, as this tool that helps you wring out the cost, uh, and you're not thinking about, how it is that you can use human ingenuity, human capital, human, uh, you know, industry uh, and talent to help you solve problems. Like, I think you're going to get into trouble, like even with customer service. Like I've uh, I've I've chatted with people who've tried to do things in, in both ways to like make it a full substitute because like they just sort of see their customer service as a cost center that. They need to optimize away. And there have been other people who say, okay, well, maybe if I take my existing customer service people who are an asset to my company and I use a bunch of AI tools to help them do the things that they are uniquely able to do, uh, like I can get better customer service uh, for my customers. I can have happier customer service agents. I mean, so like, let's say you've got a bot that um, that does the tier one customer support, like it answers the, you know, the most obvious questions. And then its job when it can't is to like very quickly traffic direct to a human being who can actually do rich, complicated problem solving, who can like understand what a customer is going through, not just their problem, but like the emotional state <laughs> that they're in, who can like 
radiate empathy and and uh, you know just sort of reciprocate some of the emotion, like form a connection. Like, hey, I can't do that yet, and like I don't see the time horizon where where it can. And so, you know, like again, if you are thinking about it as like, oh, this is ready to go, it's the full substitute for human beings. I'm going to use it to optimize about. You're you're going to just end up with crappy customer service. Uh, and you're going to get sort of caught into this trap where like that is not a situation that you can innovate from. Whereas if you are thinking about like, OK, like I love these people that I have who are working for my company are fantastic. And like I want to give them better tools so they can do an even better job. Like, my God, like you're going to get so much more out of that than this this other option. So let's, let's talk about healthcare because it's it's something you do focus on the, on the book. This is a particularly poignant time to talk about healthcare. Uh, how do you see AI helping broadly with healthcare than more specifically with the current crisis? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of, a uh, couple of things going on. One, you know, I think is a trend that I wrote about in the book and that is uh, just getting more obvious every day that uh, we need to, we need to do more. And so, so that, that, that particular, uh, that particular thing is that, uh, if our objective as a society is to get higher quality, lower cost healthcare to every human being who needs it, um, I think the only way that you can accomplish all three of those goals simultaneously is if you use some form of technological disruption. Uh, and I think AI can be exactly that thing. And you're, you're already seeing an enormous amount of progress on the AI powered diagnostics front. And like just going to the crisis that we're in right now, like one of the interesting things that a bunch of folks are doing, uh, including uh, I think I read a story about the Chan Zuckerberg initiative is doing this. So like the idea is that if you have ubiquitous biometric sensing, so like you've got you've got a smartwatch or a fitness band or like, you know, maybe something even more complicated that can sort of read off your heart tick data that can look at your body temperature, that can measure the oxygen saturation in your blood that, you know, can sort of like basically get a biometric readout of like how your body's performing. And it's sort of capturing that information over time that we can build uh, models, diagnostic models that can look at those data and determine whether or not you're about to get sick, you're sick, uh, and, you know, sort of predict with reasonable accuracy, like, what's going on and what you should go do about it. You know, the great thing about that is, like, it's not possible. Like, you can't have a, like, a cardiologist following you around all day long. There aren't enough cardiologists in the world even <laughs> to, to give you a, like, a good cardio, cardiologic exam at your annual checkup. And so, like, you, you can have this great societal benefit by having like this sort of ubiquitous diagnostic capability where you can determine whether or not people are ill before they even know that they're ill when it is cheaper to treat the illness uh, and where you get to better outcomes. And so like the CZI thing that I was uh, referencing, they had these uh, rings that they have developed that gather biometric data. And like the idea is, and like, you know, we don't know whether this will work yet or not. But the idea is like, could you from biometric data predict when somebody has COVID-19 before they're symptomatic? And if you could do that, like, even if it wasn't a foolproof test, like, you know, that would be a great signal that says, go get yourself tested, like go self quarantine, like go, you know, maybe get on one of these palliative, uh, like, potential remedies that will, 
help you, you know, fight the infection in a way that doesn't land you in the hospital. And so like, I, I think that is, it's a very, like, this isn't a far fetched thing. It's not uh, like, you know, that there is a path forward here for deploying this stuff on a broader scale and it will absolutely lower, uh, lower the cost of healthcare and help make it more widely available. So like, that's, that's one bucket of things. The other bucket of things is like just some mind blowing science that gets enabled when you intersect uh, AI with the leading edge stuff that uh, that people are doing in the biosciences. Uh, and like, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that if, you know, if, if folks are interested. I'm absolutely interested. Well, give me an example. So, you know, like I, two, two things that we have done relatively recently at Microsoft. One is, um, one of the big problems in biology that we we've we've had that that immunologists have been studying for years and years and years is whether or not you could take a readout of your immune system by looking at the distribution of the types of T cells that are active in your body and from that profile determine what illnesses that your body may be actively dealing with, uh, what is it prepared to deal with, uh, like, you know, what might you have recently had. And that has been a hard problem to figure out because, like, basically you're looking, uh, you're trying to build something called a T-cell receptor to antigen map. Uh, and, you know, like, we, we now, with, like, our sequencing technology, like, we have the ability to, like, get the profile so you can sort of see what your immune system is doing. But, like, we have not yet figured out how to build that mapping of, like, the immune system profile to uh, to diseases. Except, like, you know, we're, we're partnering with this company called Adaptive uh, that is doing really great work with us, uh, like, bolting machine learning onto this problem to try to figure out what the mapping actually looks like. And, like, we... We are rushing right now uh, a, um, a serologic test, so like a blood test uh, that hope we hope will be able to sort of tell you whether or not you have had a COVID-19 uh, infection. So I, I think it's mostly going to be useful for understanding the, the, the sort of spread of the disease. Uh, like, I don't think it's going to be as good a diagnostic test as uh, like a nasal swab and uh, like one of the sequence-based tests that are getting pushed out there. But it, it, it's like a really interesting, and the implications are like, not just for COVID-19, but like, if you are able to better understand that immune system profile, uh, like the therapeutic benefits of that are just absolutely enormous. Like we've been trying to figure this out for decades. The, the other thing that we're doing is like when you're thinking about SARS-CoV-2, which is the like the virus that causes COVID-19 and that is, you know, sort of you know, raging through the world right now. We have never in human history had a better understanding of a, of a virus uh, and like how it is attacking the body. And we've never had a better set of tools for uh, precision engineering uh, potential therapies and vaccines for this thing. And like part of that engineering process is like using a combination of simulation and machine learning and like the, you know, these cutting edge um, techniques of biosciences uh, in, in a way where you're sort of leveraging all three at the same time. So like we, we you know, we've got this um, work that we're doing with a partner uh, right now where I have taken a, uh, 
a set of supercomputing clusters that we have been using to train uh, natural language processing uh, deep neural networks uh, at just massive scale. And those clusters are now being used to search for like vaccine targets and therapies uh, for SARS-CoV-2. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, and look, we're, we're one among a huge number of people who are like very, very quickly searching for, uh, for both therapies and uh, potential vaccines. And, you know, we, there, there are reasons to be hopeful, but like we've got a way to go. But it, it's just unbelievable to me to sort of see how these techniques are coming together. And like one of the things that I'm hopeful about as we deal with this current crisis and, you know, think about what we might be able to do on the other side of it is it could very well be that this is the thing that triggers revolution in the biological sciences and investment and innovation that has the same sort of decades long effect that the industrialization push around World War II had uh, in the 40s that basically built our entire modern world. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, I keep coming back to this idea that this is a reset on a scale that very few people living today have ever experienced. Yep. Like you said, out of World War II, a lot of basic technology was invented, deployed, refined. And now we kind of get to layer in things like AI in a way that is, quite frankly, remarkable. Yeah. I do think, I mean, it sounds like we're going to have to accept that Cortana might be a little worse at natural language processing while you... Well, you search for the protein surfaces. But I, well, it's a trade I think most people will make. I, I think that's the right trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. So I, I promise that we're going to talk about white spaces. This is one of my favorite little bugbears. I've been covering it for 10 years. Do, do you want to tell people what it is or do you want me to do it real fast? Yeah, so the basic idea is that in rural places, it's very expensive to get wired broadband infrastructure into everyone's home. Like what we've done with white spaces um, is we use unused TV broadcast spectrum to set up wireless uh, transmitters and receivers that bring broadband into these sparsely populated areas of the country. Uh, super cheap. Uh, it's like very easy to deploy. You can put a you know a transceiver at someone's home. The technology is less than a couple of hundred bucks now, and the the receivers, the, the the big antennas that you have to put up are like also not expensive at all. And so, like we believe that this might be a scalable way to get the sparsely populated parts of the country like dramatically better connected than they are now. Even okay, so Microsoft has been at it for ten years, as, as yep. near as I can tell. Does it work? It does. I've never seen it work in ten years. I've never seen it work. Really? Maybe I, maybe I just gotta come visit y'all, and you can show it to me working. But I, you should come visit. So we we have it working in uh, in several communities right now. And like, granted, there are ways to make it better. But you know, I, this one to me is very personal. So my mom and brother live in this town of two hundred and fifty people in rural central Virginia, and they have really good broadband because they are lucky enough to live about 100 yards away from the local uh, telco exchange. And so they've got, they, they actually have better uh, better broadband than I do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my aunt, who lives three miles away from them, like has, I mean, it's miserable connectivity. I mean, it's like down in the hundreds of like kilobaud uh, no. that she has. And so, you know, she's constantly having to either, you know, use the internet at work or come to my mom's house to do things on the internet. 
which is just crazy in 2020. And like, imagine if, I mean, she, her children are all adult at this point. Uh, but like, imagine if she had uh, high school kids, like you cannot fully participate in like the modern system of education and get yourself prepared for a full participation in a digital future if you don't have access to the internet as a kid now. Yeah. So I guess my question is how right next to that, you know, we, we talk to a lot of telcos, we cover a lot of telecom. There's the promise of 5G is going to, it's going to do everything ever, but it's also going to, you know, a lot of the telecoms have promised 5G will come and cover rural areas. That's actually a very specific promise they've made. How does that interact with white spaces? Look, I don't, I, we don't have a, we don't care how the problem gets solved. Uh, <laughs> that's, a like good, we, that's a good attitude. We, we have offered up uh, white space as a, uh, as a possibility, and we're happy to have that used. Uh, we're happy to have it superseded by something that's better. We're happy to have it be a complementary thing. But I, I, I think you have to have real commitment to invest in infrastructure in these places. Like there's nothing miraculous about 5G uh, if you don't choose to go deploy the infrastructure. Yeah. Like not, nothing at all. And it would be great. Like there's nothing, nothing I would love more than to have my hometown blanketed with 5G. Uh, like it would, you know, in some ways, if you did that, like it could, it could spur the same sort of innovation and development as some of these, some of these like downtown areas in uh, in rural and middle America where the local community has decided to invest in municipal fiber. Uh, and like those, those investments are, you know, just incredibly beneficial for those communities, like an equivalent wireless investment in these communities could like produce similar sorts of effects in terms of innovation. When you think about specifically, you know, you, you, you're written a book that's basically about how technology is going to change the character of rural America. Right. One of the big, and now we're talking about broadband policy, which is, you can just stop me whenever it gets boring because I could do forever. <laughs> One of the big debates is, hey, actually, there's no business case for blanketing some of these small towns. There's not enough customers to lay the fiber and get any return from that investment. There's like literally not enough people. Uh, I don't buy that argument. I live in New York City. There's a lot of people. The broadband still sucks. Like th that argument to me is like very personal. Do you think there's a, a different kind of role for our government to play in terms of deploying some of these foundational access AI education opportunities? Yeah, I, I think so. I, one, one way or the other, like whether, whether it's public or private, and I think it's probably a mix of the two, like we, we have to commit ourselves to having ubiquitous high quality broadband everywhere. Like it, it, it just it's a basic public good at this point, uh, given where the future is going. You, you really can't have you can't have a like a, a straight faced argument that you're going to have an equitable future unless you have equitable access to uh, to Internet connectivity. Yeah, look, if the the thing that is preventing the markets from filling this role is sort of the cost of deploying it, then like maybe that's a place where the government should go in and try to invest in infrastructure that can change the the commercial calculus of, of doing this stuff. Yeah. And I think it's entirely possible. Like the, the, the white space technology is cheap. It's not there. There's absolutely a business case that you could make that this or something like it could be part of a solution for getting 
rural communities better connected. And if we think that it's not good enough, then like, let's like, we know how to solve huge <laughs> challenging engineering problems. Like, you know, we've got DARPA, we've got the National Science Foundation, we've got all of these institutions that, you know, when we've sort of set set these grand challenge problems up in front of people and, and sort of committed ourselves to investing in the research and the development to go make them happen, like people will go solve the problems. Like we just need to make it a priority, I think. So we've been talking on, on the sort of time scale you've been describing, two to five years, right? That's, but I want to get beyond it. When you think about AI in the 25 years, in 50 years, what does that look like to you? Uh, I think they, this is uh, <laughs> this is really, uh, really sort of tough. Uh, I, I had this exercise with um, my team recently where I was just trying to predict the next five years. Um, and Arthur C. Clarke wrote this book in the 60s called Profiles of the Future. Uh, and like this is the place where his three laws uh, got minted, you know, the 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 third law is the one that everybody knows about, like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing about that book is uh, like the point point he makes is that scientists and technologists are awful at predicting the future. Just awful. Um, <laughs> but but it is very easy though without being specific about what you think the set of technologies are going to be like you can sort of well imagine what the trends are that uh are going to shape the future and so you know like if i look at 25 or 50 years like i think we're you know we hopefully will be using tools like ai to help us deal with some of the big challenges that will be facing us so like there's climate change uh where i think ai can play a very big role, uh, all the way from, you know, materials, uh, and material science, uh, which is going to be super important to, you know, optimizing production and consumption of energy, uh, which we should be doing more of already. I, I think that like what I'm seeing already is that, uh, we're at the very, very early stages of this, uh, you know, very beneficial marriage between, biology and machine learning. And so, you know, again, even if you're thinking about how you're going to get away from a like a petrochemical uh, economy, there are all sorts of ingenious things that people are doing right now using a combination of biology and machine learning to be able to produce the uh, the materials that we need to run our lives that are like made for petrochemicals right now. But like you can actually reprogram things like yeast to go, uh, you know, brew these things for us or to use protein folding as a way to like use the uh, structure of proteins to like serve as the substrate for materials that you're generating in a very precise way. And like those biology techniques only work when they're combined with uh, with machine learning. And so, like, I, I think there's going to be this incredible flourishing of those sorts of things. Um, I do think, you know, the thing that 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 people sh should be thinking about on the 25, 50 year time horizon is we we will have in almost all of the industrial world a demographic inversion. So we are below replenishment fertility rates in almost all of the European uh, economies or countries and also in China, Korea, Japan. And so like we will have an increasingly elderly population 
and relatively speaking, fewer workers. And so if you want to continue the, you know, the productivity trends that we've had, like you actually have to have more technology. So the, the, the very thing that people are anxious about, like, you know, machines taking jobs, like we better hope that the machines come along at some point and like be able to do like a lot more than they're doing right now, because otherwise, like we won't have we won't have enough capacity to run the country and take care of uh, like the elderly people who are, you know, in various declining states of health. So I don't know. That, that's sort of how I see the future. Like, I, I think AI is going to play a very, very big role in it. Uh, I think it is going to be less about, uh, you know, again, commander data, you know, androids walking around who are, you know, like the full, you know, sapient equivalents of, uh, you know, human beings. Uh, but uh, I, I think over time, and especially at that intersection of biology and uh, machine learning, like we're going to see more and more super interesting stuff happening. That is that's a pretty wild vision of things, actually. So here's my last question. I ask it to everybody with a fancy title. We've uh, it's this is really just me trying to get it's like my self help program. We've talked about a lot of things. You have a wide range, right? We've talked about medicine. We've talked about white space internet. We've talked about uh, yeast protein, uh, yeast doing protein fold. Like we the whole range AI. When do you work? I ask. I literally ask this to. To everybody who comes on who's like a busy person, when do you sit down? It seems like you have to read a lot. You obviously write a lot. When do you do your focused work? I schedule it on my calendar. I, I'm a very early riser. So I this started when I had like really, really young children. My kids are 9 and 11 now. But like when they were infants, uh, they would just be up super early every morning. And so uh, I've never gotten out of the habit of like getting up at five in the morning. So like I get up at five every day and I can easily spend three hours doing focus work first thing in the morning before the rest of my engineering teams uh, come online. This is not the answer I want to hear. Is <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> but, but look, the, the thing, one of, one of the things that I've been doing for a really long time is, um, I got into the habit of doing OKRs. Uh, so these are objectives and key results when I was at Google. And so this is basically just sort of a high level framework where you just sort of say this quarter for these three months, like this is the top three things that I want to accomplish. Uh, and like, this is how I know that I have accomplished them at the end. Like these are the measures of success. And what I do almost every week is I sit down with my calendar like a week at a time and I look at everything that's on it and I ask myself whether or not uh, the things are on my calendar are helping me with my objectives and key results for the next three months. And if the things aren't, then like I, I cancel the meetings and I, uh, you know, like I, I reserve that time for like a thing that does help me make progress. And like a big part of that is I have uh uh, my, my EA calls them uh, TTT blocks. So they're time to think. Uh, and like, and if you look at my calendar, like they're big blocks of time that are TTT, like on uh, almost every day this week, I've got a, at least two hours of time every day. That's uh, like Mark TTT. I don't know if the listener could hear that clicking, but I literally just watched him bring up his calendar on his screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I mean, like, I'm no, it's, it's no lie, like at least two hours every day. <laughs> All right, Kevin, thank you so much. This is an amazing conversation. I know we've gone a little bit over your time. Thank you so much for joining us. We got to have you back soon. 
Oh, I would, I would, uh, I'd love to, love to come back. And this was a, this is an amazing conversation. Thank me. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Uh, tell people where they can find your book. Uh, so the book is reprogramming the American dream. You can, uh, buy it. Uh, you can pre-order now. Uh, it's on sale April the 7th, uh, at Amazon, any of your other fine online booksellers. Uh, and if you can find an open bookstore, uh, which you probably can't. <laughs> and you probably shouldn't. Yeah. You probably shouldn't. Uh, so don't go to the bookstore to buy this book. Uh, <laughs> uh, order it online. Um, yeah. And, and hopefully, uh, hopefully people will find it interesting. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Bye. All right. My thanks to Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott. His book, Reprogramming the American Dream, is out now. You can go check it out. We'll definitely have him back again in the future. We'll be back on Friday with the chat show. We'll be back on Tuesday. We're lining up some big names to talk about what is happening with technology and society right now with the pandemic. Let me know who you want me to talk to. I love that feedback. You can tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. We'll talk to you soon.